Good morning, church, and greetings again here from the United States. Pastor Craig is graciously giving me the opportunity to preach again to you this morning, and in a moment we'll do that. We're going to be actually jumping into the book of Judges, so if you want to find your place there, you can turn to Judges. Um, Craig and Nita were actually with us just recently, so they just left a few days ago. They were with us for a week and a half here in California, and we'd enjoyed so much having them here. I think they were mainly here to visit the grandkids and their daughter, but I think I was on the list somewhere, and I definitely was uh, glad to have them here. We, we just had a great time uh, during that week and a half while they were here visiting. And he also shared a little bit about the church there and you know the situation in Ireland. And just wanted to let you know that we are praying for you and that we love you. And it's been a difficult year for churches, uh, but especially in areas like Ireland where there are more restrictions. I know that you've had to deal with a lot of, um, a lot of changes. And so just want to encourage you to be thankful for... Uh, the gifts that God gives us. It's often easy to forget about those things during difficult seasons. And I also want to encourage you just to stay faithful as you have been. And God will honor that. Um, he honors that especially during times where it is more difficult to do that. So know that we are praying for you and that we are encouraged to hear of your faithfulness there in Ireland. And we pray that God will use you in a great way. Hopefully the message today will be a blessing to you. And thank you for investing the time here to hear God's word. And uh, let's jump right in. So we're in the book of Judges. If you would, flip to the end of the book, or close to the end of the book, will be in Judges chapter number 17. The book of Judges is a unique book. It's the seventh book of the Old Testament, and it records the history of God's people for about 400 years. So it's not a long period of time, but it kind of gives you a, I don't know, a documentary of Israel's spiritual history during that 400 years. Uh, during this time, Israel is repeatedly faced with a decision to either obey God or to do their own thing. And at spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, I want to give something away here. But basically, the book of Judges is mainly the story of them choosing the wrong thing. <laughs> so they're faced with a choice, either obey God or do their own thing. And they made the wrong decision over and over and over again. I remember reading years ago a commentary that described the book of Judges as with a metaphor of a coin that's spinning on a table. For the first couple chapters, it looks like the coin is spinning well, and then it starts to lose steam, and it starts to wobble, and by the time you get to the end of the chapter, it's basically uh, not even moving. It's, you know, it's making the final turns as it lands flat on the table, and it's just kind of this downward spiral. It's a little bit of a depressing book if you were to read it from start to finish, um, but I think it's important for us to read because just like us, the nation of Israel had ups and downs. This happens to be a period of their history where they were down, where they were not following God as they should. And I think as we look back over our life, we can see the same thing. We can see times where we faced consequences because we didn't follow the Lord. We didn't honor him. We can uh, relate, I think, to that, the feeling of low times where we feel distant from God, where our joy is not there, where we're cold to spiritual things. So we look back over our spiritual journey, and I think for, for all of us, we see ups and downs. Nobody has a path to spiritual growth that's just a straight line. Like, they, you know, they, they get saved, they become a Christian, and then from that point on, they're just growing every day without fail. All of us go through those ups and downs, and so we can relate to that. We, we switch back and forth, or maybe bounce back and forth between doubt and faith, between failure and victory, between discouragement and joy. We can relate to that um, that same experience that Israel had in Judges. So for this reason, we need the warning that Judges gives us because we need the warning to know that when we choose our own way, it always ends badly for us. And even though we've experienced that before, we still need the reminder. 
the book of Judges is something like a museum of Israel's spiritual history. And if it were a museum, the, the, the sign out front would say, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the theme of Judges. You'll read it again and again throughout the pages. Kind of a repeating mantra that happens throughout the, the book of Judges, reminding us that all of the tragedy and all of the pain and all of the, um, the sin and evil and wickedness that happens in the book of Judges happens because God's people faced a decision between him and themselves, and they chose themselves. And as a result, we see all of the negative consequences. So that happens throughout the book of Judges. But today we're going to look at Judges chapter 17, where we see all of those truths kind of wrapped up and vividly pictured in the life of one man named Micah. Not the Micah that you might be familiar with, uh, the prophet Micah, a different Micah, but an interesting character nonetheless, and we're going to learn from him tonight, So, or this morning. So let's look at Judges chapter 17, verse number 1. It says, And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursedst, and spakest of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. Now, let's just stop. I don't, we just barely got into it, but let's stop for a minute just to make sure that we're all on the same page because we're kind of jumping in on the middle of a story here. Essentially what happens is Micah steals 1,100 shekels from his mom and then he hears his mom um, calling down a curse on the person who stole it and probably complaining to him about the fact that it was stolen. And so he confesses and he returns the money. Now, just to give you an idea, 1,100 shekels would be about $5,000 today. So we're not talking about, um, I don't know what that would be in euro. I guess the euro is about the same. So you can do the math for, uh, for what it would be in Ireland, but it's not a small amount of money. It's not like stealing a few dollars from your mom's purse. This is a significant sum of money. And Mike is a little bit of a conflicted character. We're going to see that throughout this story, but he's not an evil person. After all, he is returning the money here, but he's not exactly trustworthy either. He, he did steal it in the first place. And then it's, it appears that he's only returning it because he's afraid of this curse that his mom is calling down on the head of the person who, you know, who stole from her. So look at how his mom responds to his shallow confession. Look at verse 2, at the end of verse 2. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of my Lord, my son. So his mom hears that he is the thief. She does a complete 180 before she's asking God to curse the person who stole from her. And then now she realizes it's her son, so she prays that God would bless him. Now, it's interesting here, she's clearly addressing the Lord, the God of Israel. If you've read Judges, you'll know that there's idolatry throughout the book. So God's people are chasing other gods and worshiping other gods throughout the story. It's why a lot of the negative consequences happen. In fact, later in this chapter, we'll see there are false gods at play in this story. But in this case, she's, she's referring here and praying to the God of Israel, and she's asking for his blessing. And to show how serious she is about what she's asking, this, this reversal, she doesn't want to curse anymore. She wants a blessing. And look at what she does. She prepares a sacrifice, verse 3. And when he had restored, her son Micah, had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had, and look at this word, holy, dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will restore it unto thee. So let's understand what's going on here. Micah's mom realizes that she's accidentally cursed her son. And now she's trying to make up for it. And essentially she's trying to appease God so he'll undo the curse. She says, yeah, I messed up. I asked for a curse. What I really want is a blessing. So to kind of make up for that, I'm going to make you an idol out of silver. It's going to be a really nice idol. Now, can you see the irony here? 
Here is a woman who is, well, to show her allegiance to the God of Israel is offering to make a statue of him. Most of you know that one of the commands, the second commandment, clearly says that you shall make no graven image unto God. So in her attempt to try to appease him, she's actually disobeying him. She, she may have been sincere, but because of her ignorance, she's actually offending the God that she is trying to appease. Um, this is just a kind of a, a picture of the whole book. All throughout the book, we, we find these kinds of mistakes made by God's people. They're so blind to their own sin and so ignorant of what God has actually said in his word that they're uh, dishonoring God even when they try to honor him. And that's a kind of repeated theme in Judges. So look at verse 4. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took, notice the number here, 200 shekels of silver. So let's just do some quick math. How much did she have from her son initially that he stole from her? 1,100. And here she's taking 200 shekels of that to give to God. So she's keeping 900 for herself. And remember that I pointed out earlier that that word, holy, she initially determined that she would give all of it to this idol that she was creating. And now here she is keeping back 900 of it. So she gives those 200 shekels to a silversmith, end of verse 4, and gave them to a founder, it's a silversmith, who made therefore a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had an house of gods and made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So this verse gives us the first glimpse really into Micah's view of religion and worship. We learned a few things. First, we learned that he has a house of gods. Okay, of course, the plural noun there already tells you there's a problem, right? Um, if I say to Sharon, out of all my wives, you are my favorite. She's not going to be very, very pleased with that statement, right? Because there shouldn't be a plural there. There shouldn't be plural wives. Same thing's true here. There should not be plural gods. So Micah adds this statue of the God of Israel to his other collection of idols. And that's not all. He goes on and he makes an ephod. Now, you may remember that an ephod was uh, used by the priest to discern the will of God. In addition to that, it was kind of a, a signifier of God's presence and God's guidance to his people. Now, there's only one of these. The priests obviously would have it. The priests would be a Levite. Um, and Micah thinks here, well, hey, I like to know God's will. I'll just whip one of those up myself and make an ephod for myself. And that's what he does. He goes even further, actually. He reads, if you read on that verse, he said that he made a pagan temple. So he has an ephod, he has a temple, um, he has these idols that have all been collected in the temple. He's only really missing one thing. If you've been kind of following along, he's missing a priest, right? No problem. Micah has a solution for that as well. He simply just calls one of his sons over and he ordains one of his sons to be priest. He doesn't have the authority to do this, but he doesn't care at this point, right? He's doing it his way. So verse 6, then, we're reminded of this running theme I mentioned in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So Micah has this set up, his own little religion. He has his own temple, his own idols. He has his own ephod that he made. He, now he has this priest that he's ordained of one of his sons. Everything kind of seems to be prepared and ready for his, his religious life. Now let's see how it turned out for him. Verse 7. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, 
and be unto me a father and a priest. And I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals, your food. So the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Here, Micah meets this Levite, and he thinks right away, yes, it's a priest upgrade, right? My, my son was a decent priest, but he really wasn't a Levite, and I know he wasn't supposed to be a priest, but this guy's a Levite. I mean, he's even closer to being a real priest. Certainly, this would be a better decision for our family religion. So he adopts this, this priest, this Levite, and he offers him a job. Um, the Levite takes the job, which he shouldn't have done, but if you try to put yourself in his shoes, you can maybe understand why he would do so, right? It's clear from the verses there that he doesn't have a place to go. He, he, he says more than once that he's journeying to find a place. So he doesn't have a destination in mind. He's not going to a certain place where he's going to stay, where he can live. So out of nowhere, this guy meets him, offers him a job, money, apparel, a place to stay, and a position, uh, you know, maybe not a huge position of prestige, but something is better than nothing. And he thinks this is a great situation great day, he accepts. And everything seems to be working out for Micah. Um, he ordains this Levite, again, without any authority to do so, and everybody seems happy. Now, I want you to see why he's doing all of this, because this is really important. What is Micah's motivation for going through all this trouble and now paying this man to be his priest? Well, we find out in verse 13. It says, Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite, to be my priest. So this is his idea. He thinks that ordaining a Levite to be priest over his house of idols will gain God's acceptance. It's very clear this is not true worship. This is a business transaction or a bargain of some kind. He's not trying to glorify God. He's trying to get something from him. He's thinking, well, surely God's going to be pleased with me now. Look, I have these pretty idols that I've collected. I have this semi-qualified priest. I have a, an ephod that I made myself. I have this beautiful temple that I've built. Now, certainly God will be, he will look on our family and he will bless us. But he's missing the point entirely. God will never be pleased with man-made attempts to justify ourselves. We cannot meet God on our terms. This is simply just empty religion. The truth is that Micah is not worshiping the true God at all. He is creating a God that suits his needs and his wants. Chapter 18, look at the next chapter, verse 1. In those, in those days, <clears throat> there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites, it's the tribe of Dan, sought them an inheritance to dwell in. For unto that day, all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. We don't have a lot of time to go into this, but you should know that the reason why the tribe of Dan is looking for a, a home, a land to, to stay in, is because way back in chapter 1, the nation of Israel did not conquer all the land that God told them to. They allowed some of their enemies to remain in the land. And so Dan, the tribe of Dan, never got their land. They never got their place to make their homes, to build, you know, build their homes and have their families. So here they are still looking for a place to live, essentially. Verse 2, And the children of Dan sent <clears throat> of their family five men from their coasts, men of valor, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said unto them, Go search the land, who, when they come to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, they lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite. Now, it's an interesting phrase. It could be that they knew him and they recognized his voice, but it's probably more likely that they just recognized his accent or his dialect. So they heard this man while they were staying with Micah and they said, hey, that guy, 
sounds like a Levite or possibly, hey, that sounds like Joe or you know whoever it is that they knew from before. And they recognized him and they turned in thither and said unto him, who brought thee hither? And what makest thou in this place? And what hast thou here? And he said unto them, thus and thus dealeth Micah with me and hath hired me and I am his priest. You can almost hear the, the pride creeping into his statements there, can't you? They say unto him, what, what are you thinking? You should be back home with your people serving God where you're supposed to be. Go home, go back where you're supposed to be. But that's not what they said. They should have said that to him. But instead, look what they say in verse five. And they said unto him, ask counsel, we pray thee of God, that we may know whether our way, which we shall go, be prosperous. And I, and I love how the Levite responds here. I, I don't love it. It's, it's, it's a wicked, evil thing to do, but it is comical to read. He responds, he, he doesn't say to them, this is what I'm imagining someone might say if they were kind of caught in their lie, right? He doesn't say to them, sorry guys, I have a confession to make here. I'm not a real priest. This guy just recruited me to run his private temple. In fact, this isn't even a real ephod. Like he just made this, it's fake. So I, um, I can't really help you. Can you guys just leave so I don't get in trouble and lose my job and my money and my nice place to stay? Just, just, just go quietly, right? That's what you might expect him to say. Kind of just soften things, try not to get in trouble, but that's not what he does. Look at verse six. And the priest said unto, unto them, go in peace before the Lord is your way wherein ye go. So this fake Levite priest who works at an idolatrous temple without any shame at all says to these men, go in peace, God be with you. And in spite of this deception, it turns out well for them. This is the remarkable thing. We're not going to read all the verses, but in verses 7 to 12, they do discover good land and they claim it as their own. And on their way back, they pass Micah's house and they have this brilliant idea. Why don't we take this religious shrine that brought us so much blessing back home with us. Hey, how great would it be to have our own religious power and guidance on demand? So they take the ephod, the graven images, the other religious items, and then they go to the priest himself and they offer him a new position. It's like they're headhunting at a different firm to pull somebody over and they say, hey, come work with us. We'll pay you more. Um, After all, you're not really surprised by his decision to go with them. He took the first job because he wanted someplace to stay and some money and now he has a better offer. So he takes it. He takes the promotion and he goes with them. Now, in verse 22, skip down to verse 22, Micah realizes what's happened and he catches up with them. And he's, you can tell he's ready to fight. Look at verse 22. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men that were in the house near to Micah's house were gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they cried unto the children of Dan and they turned their faces. This is the tribe of Dan. And they said unto Micah, what aileth thee? Thou comest with such a company, right? Just a funny interaction here. They're saying, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? What what could we possibly have done to anger you, right? Maybe it was the fact that we stole all of your stuff and your priest. Verse 24, and he said, you have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you are gone away. And what have I more? And what is it that you say unto me, what aileth thee? So Micah's kind of frustrated here. He says, hey, you, you stole from me. You took all this stuff. What do you mean? Why am I upset? You, you took my priest. You took everything. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I have nothing left. In his mind, they've taken everything. He had built his own little religious system up and he was trusting it to earn his favor, earn him favor with God. But now all those things are gone and he couldn't get them back because the people who took them were too strong. He may have brought a group of men possibly to try to, you know, try to win back his stuff, but he realizes very quickly that there's too many of them. Verse 25, 
And the children of Dan said unto him, Let not thy voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows run upon thee, and thou lose thy life with the lives of thy household. And the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So here is this sad story of Micah. And if we're not careful, we'll read it and we'll think, wow, that guy was messed up, right? He was confused. He was, uh, he had a completely wrong view of God. He tried to build this, you know, this temple and these idols. And we'll have this kind of view of him that, um, where we separate ourselves and say, wow, that guy just had, you know, he did not have it together. But let's stop for a second. And what I want to do in the time we have left is just look at three major era errors that Micah made in his personal religion here. And I want to show you how easy it is for those three errors to creep into our own thinking about God, right? Number one, I want you to notice that Micah had a false view of God. In our story here, we already talked about this. He makes a graven image unto God. It's a clear violation of the second commandment. His mom was involved as well. Most of you already know that's breaking a command of God. But have you ever wondered why God made that command? Why did God command his people not to make graven images of him? What's, what's the problem with making an image and worshiping it? There, there are multiple answers to that question, but at least one of them is this. Any graven image or depiction of God would necessarily be less than who God is, right? Because God is the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God of the universe. You can't possibly take all of that and, and put it into an idol. So by definition, this idol has to be just a part of who God is. And it has to, if anything, only reveal a part of God's character or a part of what God has revealed. So no human image or art or anything else can express the full range of God's glory. So what that means is that this idol is a distortion. Over time, you would start to think of God as only that idol, as only what that idol represents. So ultimately, worshiping God with images reveals a spirit that does not want to submit to God as he is. It's the spirit that wants to pick and choose the attributes of God that we like. Or maybe um, we want to think about God as like something small and controllable that we can put on our shelf. Remember, that's, that's really Micah's mindset, right? Is I, now, God, you have to do what's, you know, what would be a blessing to me because I have one of your idols in my temple. And it's this way of um, restricting God and minimizing who God is. Now, we look at Micah and we say, well, I would never do that. I don't have a temple. You say, you know, you say, Brother Luke, I don't have a temple in my backyard. I haven't made an ephod recently. Don't have any fake priests that I've hired. And it may be true, but I wonder this. Is there anything that you would say as you think about God and what he has revealed? I just don't know if I could believe in a God who would do that. Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard people say something like, well, I just, I, I like to think about God differently than that. Those statements are really just the same, the same exact error that Micah made of reducing God to one characteristic or one thing or to something man-made and human instead of taking God as he has revealed himself. It doesn't just happen with unbelievers. It happens to us. Most often it happens to us by avoiding the parts of the Bible that we don't like. We avoid the parts of the Bible that talk about God in a way that doesn't fit with how we like to think about him. Um, I hear Christians talk this way. Uh, they'll say things like, well, we can't talk about God like that anymore. When we talk about God's wrath or judgment and holiness, you push people away. Um, they don't want to hear those things. We need to talk about his love and, and his mercy. But the problem is that if you don't have justice, then you don't have 
anything that could even resemble mercy. If you don't have wrath, how could you possibly understand love? So in their attempt to kind of edit out these parts of God that are offensive, they're actually destroying everything. The only way that we can understand who God is is by taking him as he reveals himself to us. It's almost as if the mindset is that we need to market God, that he needs an image consultant or a publicist to make him look good. But what happens in the end is whenever we try to shape God to fit a culture, we don't get God at all. We get an idol. Whenever we try to reduce God to something less than what he has revealed himself to be, he no longer is able to shape the culture the way that he should be able to do so because we've given them a false God. Sometimes this attitude seeps right into our daily life. Maybe um, maybe there are parts of the Bible that you kind of stay away from because you know they are difficult for you to understand. They're difficult for you to reconcile with God. Um, you like to sing about God's love and mercy and forgiveness, but you're uncomfortable talking about God's justice or sovereignty. To be fair, some Christians are even uh, the reverse is, the tr- is true, right? They focus so much on God's judgment and his wrath that they create a lifeless, joyless Christian life. They use fear and guilt to try to motivate people instead of God's goodness and God's grace. So the easy way to identify if this is a problem for us is to ask the question, are there parts of the Bible that you're uncomfortable with? Are there things about God that make you uncomfortable, maybe even embarrass you? Are there things that you are not comfortable talking about with unbelievers? Is it possible that you're trying to edit God to fit your personal preferences and to cover for things that you're insecure about? It's a dangerous error because ultimately it will make it impossible for you to have a relationship with God. In a personal relationship, the other person, you know this, if you have any relationships with anybody, friends, spouse, kids, in a personal relationship, the other person can contradict you. They can upset you. Um, And then in order to keep that relationship and to go deeper, you have to wrestle through that difference of opinion. And the reality is this, if we ignore parts of God that we don't like, we have replaced the true God with a false God that will never contradict us. We never have to wrestle with him. We never have to allow him to make demands of us. We never have to submit to him. We may deceive ourselves, but we're not deceiving God. When we do this, we are worshiping a false God. We must accept God as he is. Part of being a Christian is to accept what he has revealed about himself, no matter what. Right? So number one, the first error that Micah had here is he had a false view of God. And we sometimes um, can fall into the same trap. Number two, he had a false view of sacrifice. Do you remember the slick accounting that Micah's mother employs here with her sacrifice? It, it's startling enough that she breaks the second commandment to, to you know, show her gratitude to God. But in addition to that, she also breaks the ninth commandment and she lies about her sacrifice. In verse three, she promises to give, um, give her entire 1,100 shekels of silver to God. But then in verse four, she only gives 200. So with her words, she claims to be fully devoted to God. But with her actions, she shows that she is not. Probably don't have to say any more for us to already understand that we too can fall into this error, can't we? It's easy to say the right things, to give the impression that Jesus is Lord of our lives. But in reality, it's much harder to live that way all the time. We often have areas of our lives that we will not give over to God because it's easier if we keep them to ourselves. If there are areas of your life that are off limits to your God, you can be sure that you are worshiping a God that you have made up for your for yourself. I remember reading this years ago. This quote has stuck with me. I don't remember who said it even, 
But the idea was this. If your God conveniently agrees with you on everything, then you're not worshiping the true God. You ever find someone like that where their their God that they follow, that they believe in, somehow doesn't disagree with them at all. Whatever lifestyle they choose, whatever decision they make, it always aligns. And we do this. We we just, in a very convenient way, we cut off all the parts of the Bible that conflict with the way that we want to live. And we claim that we are worshiping the God of the Bible. But the reality is this, the God of the Bible ruthlessly comes after our hearts. And in order to do that, he has to take the things often, has to take things out of our life that are stealing our affection for him. It's not punishment. It's, it's love. It's love is demonstrated in a very personal way. Um, <clears throat> you can see this here with, with, with Micah, right? Micah is worshiping a, a false god, an idol in the temple that he's built with a false priest. And what does God do? At the end of that chapter, he takes it all away, right? You know that you have an idol, by the way, when, when if it's taken from you, your response is to say what Micah said, I have nothing left. That wasn't really true, right? He had his family, he had his home. Sure, he had other possessions. But in, in, Micah's, in Micah's mindset, that was it. That was everything because it was an idol. And the same thing is true for us. Shallow faith is always looking for an easy way out. It's always asking the question, what's the least that I can do to appease God? I can keep my idols over here, these things that I kind of want to keep. I'm not going to give it all to God, but I'll just give enough to say that I'm, I'm a Christian. I'll give enough to make it appear to others that I'm really following him. But we completely misunderstand God when we do this because, like I mentioned this last time I preached, the joy and satisfaction that we are seeking is only found in God. So when we keep back from God, we are, we are absolutely not just, it's not just an affront to God who deserves all of our worship and all of our sacrifice, but in an ironic sense, it also cuts us off from the very thing that we are seeking, which is joy, satisfaction, life, peace. All those things can only be found in him. Joy is not found in unfettered freedom. If you take a fool and give him unlimited freedom, what you're going to do is you're going to expedite how fast he gets to destruction. If you take someone who is already making unwise choices and give them more money or more time or more power, the freedom does not fix the problem. It just makes it worse. And so for us, joy is not found in unfettered freedom. It's found in obedience to a good and holy God. That's the sacrifice that will bring joy in your life. So I want to ask you, are you holding back areas of your life from him? Are there areas of your life that you're just not ready to trust him with? Because if you are, you're falling in the same error that Micah was. It's a, it's a false view of sacrifice. And then number three, <clears throat> Micah had a false view of worship. What we find here in this example of Micah is really a kind of a homemade religion. Just as in every area of his life, Micah does what he thinks is right. God said the tabernacle uh, or temple should be a center of worship. But for Micah, he builds one in his own house to worship his gods. God said the priests were supposed to be from the tribe of Levi. Micah ordains one of his sons. For Micah, worship is just a matter of convenience. It's about personal preference. Whatever he thinks is right, he does. He makes his own priest. He makes his own ephod. He worships his own way. And in all of this, he rebels against the God he is pretending to worship. God reveals himself in his word. We do not discover him through our reason, or through our experience. God says, worship me as I am, not as you want me to be. 
and worship me as my heart directs, not as you think you should. Micah's family shapes a God here that's really convenient to them. They follow the laws they like and they ignore the ones that they don't. And if we're not careful, we will fall into exactly the same error. It is a religion that seeks to control and tame God, to make him in our image, an image that we can be comfortable with. And here's the key. At the core, Micah's worship is self-centered. I mentioned this at the very beginning. What Micah wants out of this interchange is he wants God to bless his family. And that's it. He wants God's blessing. So he's jumping through all the right hoops. He's trying to check off all the boxes. But that's not faith. That's not worship. That's empty religion. And that's why worship fails. If we reshape a God in our own image, a God who nods in agreement to everything that we want, a God who um, agrees with everything we think and believe already, we will never be moved to worship. Our hearts will never be moved to worship a God that small. Why? Why would you want to serve a God who we, we made up in our own minds, who we crafted ourselves? But when we have a faith and a worship that's rooted in the scriptures and what God says about himself, we will never lack a reason to praise him. We'll never lack the fuel that we need for worship because the God of the Bible is bigger than any of us can even imagine. He, you could spend your lifetime learning of him and worshiping him and never exhaust the reasons to praise him. If you know that God, why would you not want to serve him? The tragedy of man-made religion is that it always reduces God to someone to be controlled rather than seeing God as a God who is in control and worthy of our worship. It robs us of our worship. When Micah loses his priest, remember what he said? What else do I have? This is the reality. If all you have is man-made religion, then it could be taken from you. But if you have God, not even death can take from you what matters most. You could reach a point like Paul did, where you could say that even death is gain. Why? Because death is only a threat to you if it can take from you what you love most. And if you love God, then death cannot separate you from him. Every one of the losses that we experience is a reminder that ultimately our hope is in Christ. And when you are worshiping him, you fear nothing, not even death. It's a little bit of a sad story in a very depressing book. But as always, the story ultimately can point us forward to the story of Christ. The Levite priest in our text today was a liar. He was a fraud. He's a fake. He serves whoever will pay him. Uh, he tells people what they want to hear. And he moves on when he's presented with better options, right? He bails from Micah's house and goes with the tribe of Dan when they offer him a better deal. He is a fake and a fraud. His decisions are driven entirely out of self-interest. But Jesus is the selfless and perfect priest. He is the true God come in the flesh to save us. He is the perfect sacrifice given to redeem us from our sins. He is the one worthy of all worship, King of kings and Lord of lords. So every false view of God is corrected by beholding the person of Christ. Every false view of sacrifice is corrected by beholding the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. Every false view of worship is corrected by beholding the glory of Christ. What we need today is not new techniques for worship, new songs, new buildings. What we need is to behold our Savior. We need to remember his life, his death, his resurrection. We need to see his glory. And if we do, we will not struggle to know and understand God. We will not struggle to sacrifice, and we certainly will not struggle to worship. So my prayer for me, for me 
My prayer for you, church, is that we would see Christ and we would worship him for who he is because he is truly worthy. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the scriptures and I thank you for this story of, of a man named Micah. And in many ways, Micah makes all the wrong choices. And as we look at our own lives, we can look back over choices that we've made and consequences that we've had because we too have chosen ourselves instead of choosing you. And so would you use this scripture text today to warn us? Would you point out to us if there are areas of our life that we are holding back from you? Would you reveal to us, even those who are listening in Ireland and in my own heart, reveal to us if there are areas of your character and what you have revealed to us that we're uncomfortable with? Maybe ways that we are trying to edit who you are to make you more acceptable. Maybe there are areas of our life that we don't want to give over to you. So we, we, um, we have a, a small view of you. And would you open our eyes to show us the error of our way? And most of all, Lord, would you reveal to us where we are worshiping false gods instead of you? Show us where there are things in our life that have our heart, that have our affection, our time, our money, that, have, that are pulling us away from the worship that only you deserve. Lord, we pray all these things because we know that you ultimately deserve every ounce of our effort, every ounce of our praise. We want to give our lives 100% uh, to, to pour them out to you. And Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us where we are not doing that. Forgive us. Give us grace and strength to live the Christian life in a way that would lift up your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.